Hey, good morning, everybody. That's great. So good to have you here. We're one church, one message, many expressions. Want to welcome those of you that are watching online, and as well, we want to welcome those in the chapel over in our video cafe. And I have some information to share with you. Now, some of you, you'll go, I don't know those names, but many of you, you may remember that our founding pastor here at the church back in the days of Mississauga Gospel Temple, Fred and Mickey Fulford. They are with us, and they're in the chapel. So those of you in the chapel today, we're going to give a big hand in this room. We want to welcome them today. Fred and Mickey, good to have you here with us today as well. And uh, if you get a chance, I know they'd love for you to say hi, and they'll be out in the foyer. And it's always great when they drop in a visit. We were together at National Conference, our National Church Conference, just a few weeks ago. And so great to have them here on the ground. Well, let's get our Bibles. We're going to jump in together today. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 Kings 21. If you need to borrow a Bible, our ushers are in our venues and our rooms, and they're going to go through, raise your hand real high. You can borrow a Bible and then just leave it on the chair. When you're finished, we'll take care of it for you. We want you to see where we're teaching from, and so you can follow along and you can take notes. And if you're online, you can download our app, and you can follow along not only with uh, the notes, but you can also follow the Scripture reading. So we encourage you to do that. Ushers, we so appreciate your help. Well, while you're getting ready to go, if you're going to take some notes today, you can also pull them out of the bulletin. We're going to go to 1 Kings 21, and I've been looking forward to jumping into this message today. Because we're launching a brand new series. Today is the first day. We're going to be talking about heroes and villains. Now, how many of you love heroes? Let's go. All right. There's an, and where are our villain people in the room? What? You actually raised your hand. I can't believe that. We have heroes and villains. We're going to talk about heroes and villains. And we're going to be looking at the scriptures because... It's not a a normal series that you would look at. We always talk about the high points, but what about the learning lessons that can come out of the world of the villains? Now, as we get ready to go today, I want you to think about a couple of things, and the way we'll begin is this way. Warning labels, they're all around us. In fact, when you got dressed this morning, there's a good chance that the clothes you put on has a warning label in the back of it. It's about how to care for it. It's how to launder it, how to wash it, how to dry clean it. Make sure that you use it appropriately. If you made a coffee this morning, on the back of your coffee maker, there's probably a warning label or a warning indicator about the electrical hazard associated with that appliance. When you went to fill up with gas, there's usually a warning label. They're everywhere, but we just don't seem to notice them. Now, some of the warning labels are actually quite amusing. I don't know if you've noticed this. There's actually a warning label on a washing machine that says, do not use this washer with a person inside. Why, why would you do that? We have showers for that kind of activity, but apparently somebody has done that, and that's why. If you do that, they need to put a label on it. There's another warning label. It's for a child stroller. It says, caution, do not fold while child is still in stroller. I know your kids may be hard to handle, but that's not how you do it. You don't constrain them inside of a stroller. And I love those. Are, how many like fishing? Well, Jeff, you got a few friends. All right. So fishing, a brass fishing, a three-hooked fishing lure has a warning label on it. Harmful if swallowed. The fish know this. We should know this. Really, it all is so natural. Why do I talk about warning labels? Because Ontario should have a warning label. Warning, it's going to snow today. Sorry, I just heard it on the news. That's all I can tell you. Really, Ontario does need a warning label, though. We're still not in the summer. But warning labels can actually apply to people's lives. Now, some of you are thinking we should have a warning label on Sundays when Doug is up. Warning, this service is going to go longer than anticipated. Or warning, you're going to get your best day of sleep ever in this service right here. Warning labels serve an important purpose. 
They warn us of potential threats. They warn us of potential danger or possible death. And they instruct us in a better way to live. So why talk about warning labels? Well, for this reason. When we talk about heroes and villains, villains are often those individuals in Scripture that we can identify that they should have a warning label on them. Because we read the stories, we open up the Bible, we get into the Word, and we're looking carefully, and we're often, we're overwhelmed, we're amazed or shocked at the life that they live, but it's hard to draw the application point out. So what I want to do today, if you're ready to go, I want to look at a particular villain, and I want to put some warning labels on this life. Now, let me give you a little context as we get ready here. This particular individual, this character, is probably the most infamous woman in all of the Bible. Think of it this way. Her name will never appear in the top list of baby's books of recommended names for your newborn. It is unlikely that you're going to hear her name called out at school, in the mall, in the church parking lot, or even tweeted out on social media. And while her name is not in vogue, it does evoke an instantaneous reaction when we hear it. Her name is Jezebel. How many of you have heard that name before? Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Even for those who are not necessarily closely associated with faith circles or they're on a journey of faith, when you raise the name Jezebel, we, we seem to know this name. Where does it come from? A little bit of background so you have some context, those of you that enjoy the scriptures. The date that we're going to step into right now is about 874 B.C., going to look into the time in Israel's history when Israel was fractured as a nation. It's no longer one cohesive nation. It's been split apart. We have in the north, we have the northern kingdom, it's called Israel. We have the southern kingdom, it's called Judah. Both have monarchs that reign over them. And in the north, a gentleman by the name of Ahab, and some of you will know his name, infamous man as well. He's now king over the northern kingdom of Israel. And in order to secure his dynasty, What he does is he forms an alliance with another nation just a little bit north on the Mediterranean Sea, a place called Sidon and Tyre, the region of Phoenicia, and he reaches out to the king, and the two kings form this treaty, this alliance, so that they can have more strength, protect themselves against Assyria and Babylon, you know, the big dogs. They want to make sure that their little kingdoms are going to be secure, and so they go, if we can align ourselves together, we're going to be a little bit better. So to secure the alliance, these two kings work out an agreement that the king of Sidon his daughter will marry Ahab, king of Israel. So that brings, you know, when you're family, you're in, right? When you marry in, you're in. So if you're married in and you're an in-law, you're stuck with that family. So the king from, Tidon, or from Sidon and Tyre, he goes, oh, this is a great deal. So my daughter Jezebel is going to be your bride. King Ahab should have run. Well, I'm telling you, we're going to find out why. But anyhow, Ahab signs up. And he goes, okay. So here's background on Jezebel. Jezebel is going to come out of a country where Baal worship is prolific. She's not casual. She's fanatic with it. And an opportunity for her now in this marriage is to forge her own identity, and she will do everything in her power. If you're new to the Bible, she does everything in her power to displace the worship of Jehovah of God out of of Israel and to replace it with Baal worship and Astart worship or the Astoreth pole. And she's relentless. She murders the prophets of God, and she fully intended to murder God's, what we call preeminent prophet at the time, Elijah. So Jezebel is quite the catch, isn't she? So mom and dad, if you have a daughter-in-law, she is a princess 
at all lengths. I mean, this Jezebel is what a woman. So we're going to have a look at her story. We're going to see why she's such a villain. And most importantly, what I want to do by the time we're done today is I want to leave you with a couple of warning labels so that when you hear the name Jezebel, it's not merely a name of somebody in the Bible that you go, yeah, that was probably a bad character, but rather it raises a little bit of an awareness for us that together we would go, I want to make sure I never do that. All right, you ready to go? Get your notes out, get your pen out, and if you're over in 1 Kings chapter 21, we're going to read. Follow along as I read this morning. Here's what it says. So they're they're now married. This is a context, Ahab and Jezebel. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, a Jezreelite. So the vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it's close to my palace. And in exchange, I'm going to give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'm going to pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. And he lay on his bed sulking, and he refused to eat. So his wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen, and why won't you eat? And he answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I will get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. And in those letters, she wrote this, Proclaim a day of fasting. Seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people, but seat two scoundrels opposite him. Have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. And then take him out and stone him to death. And so the elders and the nobles who lived in Naboth said he did as Jezebel directed in the letters that she had written to them and the rest of the stories in 1 Kings 21. And all we can do is go... Wow, men, do you not love your wife in a whole new way today? That would have been a good place for amen. All right, let's take a few notes. So here we have Jezebel and Ahab in this incredible little moment. It's just one instance in their marriage where we see her character rise up. We see this villainous act in her life, the evil, the the murder, the corrupt immorality, dictatorial control, the manipulation. You take all of this coupled with her complete disregard for God. And friends, we have a reason to talk about a few warning labels. So here's the first one I want you to write down. When you think of Jezebel, I want you to remember this. Do not let your past define your future. Do not let your past define your future. You go, Doug, what do you mean? Well, when you look at Jezebel, I want to take you back to a little moment in the marriage. Because when the two kings were forming a treaty, they're forming an alliance, we know that Jezebel came from the region of Phoenicia to the north. So she had in that moment an opportunity. Marriage gives you a wonderful opportunity. It changes circumstances, uh, relocation. All of these things give you brand new opportunities. So in her marriage to Ahab, she was no longer under the dominion, the control, or the influence of her father. Now, her father was an interesting character. His name was was Ethbal. He had murdered his brother in order to take over the, the throne to become king. So she was raised in this ruthless kind of cutthroat, hedonistic, self-advancing culture, she had seen it all, and Baal worship was prolific. So she was immersed in this culture, and in a moment, a marriage union, an alliance between two nations, she is going to be pledged to the king of Israel, to Ahab, and she has a choice. Now, Ahab's culture is not the Phoenician culture. 
Now, we know there's some problems. If you read the Bible, you understand that they were constantly chasing after idols and idolatry and all of that kind of stuff. But predominantly within Israel and within Judah, everyone knew that Yahweh was God. Now, their faithfulness wavered, but they knew that God was Yahweh, and they worshiped and served God. So when Jezebel marries Ahab, she has a choice. I can leave my father's culture and have this brand new beginning, or I'm going to try to take my father's culture and I'm going to superimpose it in my new culture. Friends, it's in that moment when we have these decisions to make, when we choose to take what is in our past and bring it into our future, it will redefine our very lives if we're not careful. And that's where the warning label should have gone with him. Because in this story, Jezebel starts to play it out. You go back into what we just read a few moments ago. Ahab decides that he wants to have this particular piece of property. So when he saw it, he tries to negotiate with Naboth. And Naboth goes, no, I'm not, I'm not going to sell my property. It's my, it's my family's ancestry. It's our inheritance. So he goes home. And what does the Bible say? He goes home. He's disappointed. He's pouting. He's sullen. He's angry. He goes in his bedroom. He lays down. He goes, oh, man. And he doesn't eat. How many wives have husbands like this? Don't raise your hands. He's the king, and he can't influence his own people. So she walks into his room, and here is the moment. You're going to see this decisive moment where she chooses. Am I going to understand the culture in which I'm living, or am I going to pull my past in, and I'm going to define my future right now? And in your notes, I want you to look at this verse. It's 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 7. Jezebel walks into King Ahab, and she says to him, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up, eat, cheer up. And here it comes. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Woohoo, this is not. I love my wife. Honey, I love you. Because look at this woman. Look at the power. Look at the control. Look at the abuse that's coming into play here. Now, in this moment, what could have been a brand new beginning, she refuses. She did not embrace her new opportunity to start over. Rather, she leveraged her opportunity to take over. And she saw a weak husband as an opportunity for her to bring the influence of her culture into the nation of Israel. And what Jezebel completely overlooked was an opportunity for a fresh start. That God had actually opened a door up into her world. We often don't see this. We just think of Jezebel in the worst way. But Jezebel had this opportunity to come in and there could be this fresh start. Now something took place here in this land exchange that she missed. Because... In this moment, had she realized how God had structured the entire nation of Israel before its division, the northern and southern kingdom, that God, when he brought the people into the land of Israel, God had had them divide out the land. And there was ancestral land, and God would be preeminent. Theocracy, not a monarchy, theocracy. And God would take care of the land, take care of the people, and there were their individual inheritances. She comes in, and she goes, no, no, we're going to reign with a monarchy. And monarchs do whatever they want. We don't care about the people. So we're going to take that land, Ahab. I'm going to get you what you want. And she does exactly what she saw her father do. She lets her past define her. Why do I raise that? Because I wonder how many times in our own lives we do that. I think about Peter, when Peter denied Jesus. Remember that episode? And he said, Jesus, I'll defend you. I'll fight for you. I'll live to you to the very end. In fact, yeah, let's pull a sword. Let's go after it. And then he gets into the courtyard and they go, aren't you one of his followers? He goes, not me. Don't know the guy. Are you sure you're not one of them? Not me. Don't know the guy. And then he begins to curse. And in that moment, there's such guilt, such remorse, such sorrow in his heart. Peter can't even face Jesus anymore. He turns and he runs away. 
And it would be Jesus that would reach out to Peter to bring him back into relationship because Peter was going to let that moment of failure begin to define his future. He was actually going to turn away from everything that Jesus had raised him up to. Thomas could experience the same thing with his doubts. Jesus to the woman caught in adultery. What did he say to her? I don't condemn you now, but go and sin no more. Don't, don't let all of that past stuff now define what your future is going to look like. How does that apply to us? How does it apply to you? I think in the room, I think those of you that are watching me online and the other venues today, more than we realize it or not, we allow our past to define our present and our future. We allow shame, brokenness, failure, hurt, guilt, anger, power, authority. We allow all of those issues that were past issues to actually define who we are. And so in moments of conflict, moments of challenge, moments of disappointment, rather than moving in the grace and the power and the presence and the love of the Spirit that we've been given, we reach back and we pull out the seeds of what has been deep in our hearts from before. And like Jezebel, we tend to pull stuff forward. Have you ever noticed that? And then we stop and go, where did that come from? It's what we're doing. We're doing exactly what Jezebel did. We're we're allowing things of our past to begin to shape and define our present and our future. And the warning label that we need to have on our lives is we don't do that anymore. In fact, the beauty of the message of the Christian faith is, is this, that God has paid the price for all mistakes, all failure, all past regrets that we have. And he goes, it's brand new now. Your life is brand new now. So you don't have to continually reach backwards. You walk in the newness of the life. Look in your notes. I put a verse in there. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul writing to the believers. He says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has what? Gone. And the new has come. So he even reminds the believers, he goes, get a load of this. The old, it's gone. It's removed from you. So your sin and your mistake and your failures and your control and the abuse, it's all gone. The new is now here. So live in the newness and the fullness of your life. And Jezebel didn't allow that to take place in her world. She stepped into a culture that could have been transformative to her, and instead she brought her old ways into it. Paul would write to the believers in Asia Minor. It's, again, in your notes, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Even before God made this world, he loved us, and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gives him great pleasure. Paul reminds all of us today that God has transformed us through Christ, that anyone who has embraced Jesus Christ asked for Jesus to be Lord of their life. He goes, your past, you don't need to bring it into the, into the present anymore. You don't need to carry it with you into the future. You are brand new creations. And friends, that's the message of hope that we have that I don't have to worry about what was in my past. I get to walk in a newness of life. So when I think of Jezebel, I think we should put a warning label on this woman. Do not let your past, do not let it define what your future is going to look like. Here's a second one I want you to write down today. When I look at her life, and particularly when I look at this incident, and Jezebel and the way she expressed her life, I would write this warning label, do not be consumed by a thirst for power. Do not be consumed by a thirst for power. This is perhaps what I would think is one of the most subtle and perhaps even the most insidious threats to any life, and yet we quickly dismiss its influence on us. But we all know deep inside of us how easily power begins to take control. So think of Jezebel for a moment, then we'll come back to this. 
Jezebel was intimately familiar with it. She saw it. She witnessed the unbridled aggression in her father's life. What she didn't realize is how deeply those seeds and memories were planted into her own life, and in her moment of opportunity, power would become hers. So her husband comes home. I can't get the, gra- the vineyard that I want. And so she's watching him mope around the house. He's just flicking the remote on the TV, channel after channel, surfing YouTube, looking for something to numb his own pain. And she finally has enough of it, and she walks in. She goes, what is wrong with you? This isn't how the king of Israel acts. You want the vineyard? I'll get it for you. And so what does she do? Look in your notes. So she wrote letters, verse 8, she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, sent them to the elders and the nobles who lived in Naboth's city. And she rolls out this carefully crafted plan. So I actually, when I was looking at the verse, I look at all the little actions that she took upon herself. She wrote, she placed, she sent, she communicated to the civic officials. She quests for power, takes control, and exercises it over the situation. In this moment, I want you to think carefully about the abuse of power. Here's a woman that usurped King Ahab's authority. She abused her position of trust as one of the monarchs of the land. She coerces civic officials. She plots a scandal. She sanctions Naboth's death. Power, when it's unbridled, will corrupt to the very core. And that's why there should be this warning label all over her life. I think it's little doubt in my mind that when Walt Disney was penning the character for 101 Dalmatians, that Cruella de Vil was really Jezebel. That's who I'm thinking he had in mind, don't you? And if you've watched the movie, The Devil Wears Prada, you know who Meryl Streep really was, right? That was Jezebel. That's, that's the image of this person, this thirst and quest for control and manipulation and direction. It's Jezebel all over the place. Now, when she receives word that Naboth is dead, what does she do? She tells Ahab, go take possession of the land. So if your Bibles are still open, go to verse 15, 1 Kings 21, verse 15. So as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she says to Ahab, now get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell to you. It is no longer his. He is alive. Uh, sorry, he is dead. And so he tells, she tells her husband, go and take over that plot of land. Now, think carefully for a moment. Is it just me? Or has anyone else ever wondered, did Ahab not stop and ask what happened to Naboth? Like, he was alive when I talked to him just recently. How is it his untimely demise just happened to come about? See, she was signing letters and sending them out under her own authority. And so he's not even paying attention. And I look at this and I go, was he really not aware of what his wife was up to? Did he not know what she was doing? But like a good husband, because we're obedient, aren't we, men? He just said, okay, honey, if you want me to go take possession of the vineyard, I'm off, I'll go take possession of the vineyard. Go back to Jezebel now. Think about her power. For her, marriage wasn't a treaty. It was a trump card for power. She aggressively deconstructed the worship of God in Israel. She arbitrarily implemented Baal worship. She imports the prophets, to come and lead out the Baal worship. She ruthlessly murders the prophets of God. She intimidates, she threatens, she destroys anyone her way. She sets herself up against God and against Elijah. And we are astonished by this woman's insatiable thirst for power. But, and this is big, but are we not all too conscious of our own thirst? 
while ours may not be in the arena of public domain and territories and kingdoms, ours is in the place of the heart. It is leveraged over family and friends and co-workers and neighbors. Our thirst for power may never materialize in the orchestration of murder, but the thoughts and actions have been carefully rehearsed and regularly played out in the arena of our minds. Power is insidious and subtle. It's that desire for self-promotion, for advancement, for control, for influence. The false sense of humility and submission when deep inside the heart is resistant. We know what power does. Little wonder that Jesus would underscore the need for a warning label. Do not thirst for power. Even with his own followers, those that were closest to him, he could see into them and he could see in their hearts the seeds of discontentment that would sprout up and easily lead them astray. And so with a simple but solemn warning, he says in your notes, Mark 10, 43, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great must be your servant. And whoever wants to be, most, uh, to be first must be the slave of all. Jesus recognized that if we don't get control over power, power will get control over us. And so we must not be consumed by this thirst for power like Jezebel was. Peter was intimately familiar with its lure. The need for affirmation, the sheer desire for recognition. He would write in 1 Peter chapter 5, 5 and 6, he says, in the same way you who are younger... Submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with what? Humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Jesus recognized that Peter picked up on it. He goes, if you don't control your thirst for power, it will destroy you. And when you think you have it firmly in your hand, it will actually take out the underpinnings, the very foundation of your life. So he says, use humility. Walk humbly before your God. Don't let it control you. Yet Jezebel is this woman, this villainous character that has a great warning label for every one of us to heed. Back into your notes real quickly. One more thought on Jezebel this morning. If I could put a third warning label on her life, it would be this. Do not miss an opportunity for redemption. Do not miss an opportunity for redemption. As she's driving her life along, everything is about conquest, control, power, authority. She would manipulate to get there. And yet there's a little window that we find in this story that's rather unique. Now, I don't want to mislead you. I want you to understand very carefully here. Ahab was no prince. You understand that, right? This is probably one of the most wicked kings that you could read of in the Scriptures as well. But he had been raised under the awareness of who Jehovah was, Yahweh. He knew God's presence. He was familiar with the temple worship. He was familiar with the prophets. He had heard the word of the Lord. So as this whole little incident is taking place, it's important to look at a little story at the end of this this episode to help us understand a little bit better. So if you read the rest of 1 Kings 21, when uh, Jezebel finally secures the property for her husband Ahab, she gets news that Naboth is dead. She goes, hey, Ahab, Head down to the vineyard. I want you to go down and go enjoy yourself down there. It's now your property. So he goes along innocently. My wife said I could do it. I'm going to go. So he goes down there. So he's down hanging out in his brand new vineyard, and he's probably walking through, looking at it, and it said that he wanted it for a garden. Remember what it said in the Scripture? He's probably going, you know, we'll do some carrots there, some lettuce over there, and a little bit of corn back there. It'd be kind of cool. It'd be nice. I'm going to have a wonderful little property here. Meanwhile, God's speaking to his prophet, Elijah. He goes, hey, Elijah, I got a job for you. 
And Elijah's always faithful to God. And he goes, okay, I'm in. What do you need me to do? I want you to go to talk to Ahab. And he's like, oh, him. He said, yeah, I need you to go talk to Ahab. And I want you to go down to Naboth's vineyard. Doesn't call it Ahab's vineyard. I want you to go to Naboth's vineyard and talk to the king. I have a few things I'd like to say to him. So Elijah, this is, man, this fearless man, he just goes, okay, I'm good. I'm going to go down. So he makes his way down. He gets to the vineyard, and he confronts King Ahab. Now, there's a little bit of verbal jousting that goes on back and forth because, you know, they're not the best of friends. And Ahab isn't really respectful of Elijah. And Elijah, of course, is just bringing God's indictment against the king. But there's a point when Elijah begins to express the word of the Lord. And he goes, Ahab, you have to understand something. God has a serious indictment against you. And if we were to look at the words and unpack maybe what God would want to say to him, there's issues of murder, conspiracy to commit murder, fraud, unlawful possession of property, theft, witness tampering, perjury, you name it, the king had committed it. So Elijah lays it out in front of him and he goes, do you understand God is going to cut your day short for this? And something cuts to the heart in Ahab. The Spirit of God nails him for this, and he realizes how far off the track he had gotten. And there's a window, an opportunity for redemption. What is that? The opportunity to bring back into wholeness, to bring back into the right place, to buy back, to to bring back. That's what redemption is, the restoration. There's a window of opportunity here where Ahab, the king over Israel, realizes how serious this whole thing was. And you can only imagine standing in the vineyard of Naboth, realizing I'm standing on ground that is saturated with innocent blood. And here I am. And I'm acting like nothing's happened. And in that moment, the Bible says an amazing thing. Look at your notes. It's in verse 27. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes He put on sackcloth, he begins to fast, and he lays in sackcloth, and he begins to go around meekly. So much so was his transformation that God took note of his change of heart. And he sends word back to Ahab, and he goes, I've seen how you've responded, I've seen how you've acted, and I will not bring the punishment upon you that I had said I was going to bring. I will leave that for another generation. And so in that moment, Ahab experiences this incredible reprieve, this opportunity that redemption brings. And hope comes into his world. So he admitted his faults and failures. He admitted his sins and his wrong. And he walks in the humility. But what about Jezebel? What about Jezebel? Now, you know and I know, she knew everything that was going on. Nothing escaped the notice of this woman. So when Ahab comes home wearing a new wardrobe, not necessarily the latest trend, she would have gone, "Uh, what's with the burlap? And he goes, well, I've humbled myself before God. Well, that would have enraged her because the only God she wanted to worship was Baal or Ashtar, not Jehovah. You what? And you could just feel the cold, calculated, callous heart. You what? And Ahab tried to explain his way through an opportunity for redemption, walking humbly now before his people, before his God, even before his wife. And you would think in that moment, Jezebel, wake up. Here is your opportunity. And yet Ahab's contrition was impervious to Jezebel's spiritual state. And this wasn't the first time. You go back to chapter 18 of 1 Kings, you'll find, or in, yeah, in 1 Kings chapter 18, here's what you'll find, a little show-off 
at Mount Carmel between Jezebel's prophets and Elijah the prophet. And in that moment when God would show himself, prove himself by fire, and it's a great story, read it when you get the chance. But when God would prove himself beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is a living God, what happens? It says that all the people who witnessed this fell to the ground in worship of God. You are God. And what does Jezebel do? Elijah, I'll kill you when I get my hands on you. Even when God reveals himself to everyone unmistakably, her heart is completely unmoved. Little wonder three chapters later, when it's over a vineyard incident, if she will not yield her heart when God demonstrates and reveals himself in his power and his presence, why should she bend her heart when her husband shows up in burlap? And there should have been a warning label. Never miss an opportunity for redemption. And so we see her life carried out. In fact, it's a great story. You do need to read the rest of her life. There's a prophecy that comes. And her name will be erased. And her very existence, she will end in demise. And the dogs will lick up her blood from the streets. And that's exactly what took place there. So why do we share this? Because these warning labels are far too important for us to bypass. Because we can look at the characters who we call heroes and villains, and then this one, we can look at a villain and go, well, those are good insights, those are good lessons. But I wonder in our lives if maybe we've missed opportunities for redemption as well, where we carry on and we move through life, and we've missed God's whispers where he's trying to reach our hearts. See, here's what I know to be true. Religion can inoculate you against a relationship. Form and function and practice can cause us to believe we are in relationship with God, but it's the heart that is repentant and yielded before God that brings us into relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so never miss an opportunity for redemption. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Paul writing to the believers, he said, I tell you that now is the time of God's favor, and now is the day of salvation. Jesus speaking to his church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, recognizing that there are those that were missing this opportunity. He says through John, he goes, Here I am, I stand at the door and I knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with that person and they with me. What is he referring to? I want to have relationship with you. I want relationship to be based upon the redemption that I have provided for you. Now I know hundreds of us, hundreds of us have personally experienced what it is to embrace God's gift of forgiveness, the forgiveness of our sins, the new relationship that we have with him through grace, the wonder of what it is to walk in holiness and relationship with him that way. But I wonder how many of us would be honest, honest enough to say, I have not really truly embraced an opportunity to experience God's forgiveness in my life. And the warning label is more than just information. The warning label is actually an invitation That's what it is. When you read about Jezebel, I want you to read the story of her life and then pause for a moment and go, I never want to have a heart that is that cold. I never want to have a heart that is that callous. I want my heart to be soft, supple, yielded before God. So I would ask everybody today one question. Have you accepted God's opportunity for redemption, for the forgiveness of your sins? 
to walk in relationship, to know that your past is no longer determining what your future is going to look like, that power is no longer going to be the thing that needs to drive you in life, but relationship with your heavenly Father has been provided through Jesus Christ, and it's already been paid for. He said, all you need to do is accept it. And around here, what we talk about is we say yes to Jesus. That means we recognize that he is the Son of God. He paid the price for our personal sins. He died on the cross, was raised by the power of God to new life, and in that power, he offers us new life as well. And the last thing that I want to leave with you is an opportunity to say yes to Jesus because we never want you to leave without an opportunity for redemption. So would you pray with me right now? Father, this morning, I thank you for the truth of your word and the stories that come to life for us. But I thank you for the spiritual truth that brings us deeper into relationship with you. And I even pray today, whether for those that are watching us online or those that are in the room or watching in one of our venues or just listening to my voice today, that not one of us would miss an opportunity to experience redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, and a brand new relationship with you because of what your son Jesus Christ has done for us. I think we all recognize that, Lord, in our lives, the Bible says that we've, we've missed the mark, that we have all sinned. But Jesus, you paid the price for that sin. It's covered. It's cared for. So all we need to do is recognize and by faith receive your gift of forgiveness. And that's the opportunity that redemption provides. So would you do that, Holy Spirit, today in these services? I pray as your eyes are still closed, just in a moment of personal reflection and prayer, I would like to ask everybody today just to respect each other, not look around. But if you're in the room or in one of the other rooms and you'd be honest enough to say, Doug, I've heard a lot about Jesus. I've attended church maybe all of your life. But I've never asked Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I've never accepted his gift of salvation, the forgiveness of my sins. And I don't want to miss this opportunity and today is my day. I'd love to pray for you before we go. And if that's you, would you raise your hand real quick in this room and in the other rooms? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Others? Thank you. You can take them down once you've raised them. Anyone else today? I just commend you for doing that, for the courage that it takes to do that. But today's the day, the opportunity for redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. Anyone else real quick? So, Father, you see the hands that have been raised in the room. These are men and women, young people that are saying, Jesus, I say yes to you. You are who you claim to be, the Son of God. Come in, forgive my sin. Fill my life. Let your spirit dwell in me. Give me the new character, the new life that I will live every day of my life for you. And Father, we're so grateful for what you're doing. And I pray this in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.